0: This is Now Then. then. Stories Stories of people people over over 70 years years old told. told in their own words. This is Eva. Franco was a nationalist extreme national fascist. The Republicans were in power when Spanish Civil War broke out and it was a rebellion against the Republicans. And for a time it looked as though the Republicans were winning. In fact it was their bombs that were falling on Mallorca and um, frightening me. And they were the people we wanted to win. It was a terrible war because it broke up families and when Many, many years later, I revisited Mallorca, were struck by the fact that nobody spoke of the Civil War. It was like a blanket of silence over that war. People were afraid of raking up old, bad emotions. Excuse me. Hello? I am well, my darling, but I am in the middle of What do I say that I'm in the middle of, please? (laughs) Recording a podcast. Recording for a podcast. Oh. Okay. Okay, bye. In 1955, I met Igor Ozim, a Yugoslav violinist who studied with my teacher, Max Rostal. Although he was my age, he was already an international soloist, violin soloist, and very worldly wise and sophisticated, good-looking. <laughs> so I developed a crush on him. He asked me out once but only once we had dinner together I was very very struck by him but he wasn't very struck by me I don't think. Subsequently I met another friend of Ivan's from the Royal College of Music who was a piano student and he was also a Yugoslav but from a different part of Yugoslavia. Igor Osim came from Slovenia if I remember correctly and Dushan was a Serbian. Knowing they were both Yugoslavs, and this was long before the breakup of Yugoslavia, I thought they must know each other. And I went all out to make an impression on Dushan so that he would tell Igor how wonderful I was and that (laughs) therefore I would get somewhere with Igor. However, it didn't work out that way. Dushan pursued me relentlessly and I really wasn't interested at first. I kept him rather at arm's length. Although I treated him with great coolness, it it made no difference. He just went on pursuing me. Until one day, he and I went for a walk on Hampstead Heath, and he was telling me how unhappy it made him that the one person to whom he felt closest was keeping him at arm's length. So I explained that it was because I cared for him that I was being rather cool to him because I didn't want to lead him on. But after a while, I began to ask myself, why was I keeping him at large length? And I began to doubt it. And then we went to the Cosmo restaurant in Finchley Road, which doesn't exist anymore. And we sat at a table next to a window. And suddenly... I was most overwhelmingly happy and I didn't know what had hid me. What on earth was going on? Why was I so happy? And there was Dushan holding my hand saying how happy he was now. And I realised that I'd fallen in love and somehow he'd picked it up. And Igor was completely forgotten. He was of no account anymore at all. I think it was in February 1956 that I suddenly woke up and realised that I was madly in love with Duchesne. And this went on for seven months until I had to go back home to South Africa, and not long after he was going home to Yugoslavia. I was totally overwhelmed by the emotion of feeling in love, extraordinarily happy but also filled with a kind of melancholy because I knew that we would have to separate sometime. And yet I knew that that was the best thing because I could not imagine how we could go on forever with this passionate feeling for each other without it just consuming us. I really felt as though I was on fire and that the fire would consume me if if it went on forever. It was probably necessary for us to part, although when we did... They nearly killed me. We never actually consummated our feelings. I think he was afraid of making me pregnant. It was before the time of the contraceptive pill, which would have made the whole situation much more relaxed. Although I was equipped with contraceptive equipment, (laughs) I suppose he just felt that that might not be safe. I don't know. Our friends could not understand why, with such both of us being so madly in love with each other how we never contemplated marriage we we actually never did because we both knew that it wasn't going to work he came from a long line of greek orthodox priests and i was jewish had no intention of converting and it just wouldn't have worked and we knew that and we were both very sad very sad to part I don't remember what month the Suez Crisis happened, but I remember Dushan being with me in my in my little room in Hammersmith, and we were listening to the news at the time of the Suez Crisis, and a lot of rabble-rousing was going on in Egypt, um, Colonel Nasser appealing to the nationalist feelings of his fellow Egyptians, and they were all all very charged up and inspired by what was happening and I was actually filled with dread because I knew that it would have a very bad effect on Israel and I was very concerned about Israel because I felt that our very being as Jews depended on Israel surviving and here was my beloved cheering on these Egyptian nationalists because He had very strong Serbian nationalist feelings. He could identify, he had empathy with these people and he was excited for them. It was very strange for me that he he was so closely identified with the Egyptians at that point. My name is Eva Meyer. I was born in Germany in Cologne, Cologne on the twenty fourth of august nineteen thirty one in nineteen thirty three hitler came to power and already that year my father received a letter saying that he was no longer allowed to practise as a tax consultant because he was not of aryan birth And unlike a lot of Jewish people who thought this was a short aberration that was going to blow over, that the German nation which had brought forth so much wonderful culture could not possibly descend to these depths. Um, And they stayed, whereas my parents were not prepared to sit around and be humiliated and insulted and decided to leave they chose to emigrate to Mallorca because according to what my mother told me, war had not touched Mallorca for a 100 years and it was known as the Island of Peace. And it was wonderful. It was the happiest time of my childhood. However, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out and although it took three years for Franco to win his war, he had already taken over the island of Mallorca within the first year. Bombs were falling in Palma de Mallorca, and my mother sent me to wash dishes to distract me and also hoping that the noise of the dishes would prevent me from hearing the noise of the bombs dropping. Because so I was frightened, I remember saying, please tell them not to hurt Eva. <laughs> I have evidence that my father attempted to become naturalised Spanish. He had to give a reason and it was that he did not wish to return to Germany. But I imagine that he did not succeed in getting naturalised because I think that was the reason why in 1936 we were made to go back to Germany because we were German nationals. I think we were told to leave. We got onto a German warship which was rather small and which pitched and made me very seasick. And the sailors put me into a deck chair, covered me up, and when I woke up, I would find a box of chocolates. (laughs) According to my mother, I made German newspaper headlines as the youngest traveller on a German warship. They didn't realise that we were Jewish. Yes, they couldn't have done. Mid-ocean, we had to change onto a large ocean liner by climbing up a ladder on the side of the ship. And the whole atmosphere changed because the sailors were absolutely lovely to to us. But on this ocean liner, which was, of course, much larger, there were many German expatriates going back home to Germany and they must have realised that we were Jewish and they looked at us with unveiled contempt. And although I was only four not quite five years old i was puzzled by this and it hurt me and it made me shrink in, inwardly i couldn't understand it at all we disembarked at genoa and we traveled on the train locked up in our in our particular coach not being able to get out not being able to have any food or drink except in Switzerland where somehow or other there were vendors who came to the window and sold some fresh milk to my parents, which was the only time in my life that I enjoyed drinking milk. When we arrived in Munich, according to my mother there were banners announcing, welcome to the refugees from communism, which of course did not apply to my parents, who had travelled in this locked coach. My father was immediately arrested for the crime of being Jewish. My mother, in the meantime, took me to her hometown where we spent the night at her parents' and I felt very happy there in their cosy home. And the next morning was my birthday and we had to leave them in order to rejoin my father who had meanwhile been given the choice of going to a concentration camp or going direct to Italy with just a train ticket for the three of us and nothing, no possessions other than the clothes we stood in. Did I say it was my fifth birthday? We lived in Milan for about two months and then had a letter from my father's aunt Ilse in Johannesburg who had written to say that she had made it possible for us to emigrate to South Africa, and with the help of financial aid from some international Jewish agency, my father obtained a passage for us on the Duilio, an Italian ocean liner, which was sunk during the war by the Allies, as we read in a a Johannesburg newspaper much later, but it got us safely to South Africa. My father and I were great companions. We used to walk together a lot and he used to give me lectures about religion, in which he absolutely did not believe he was an atheist, and also about the racism in South Africa. And he said that we as Jews who had suffered discrimination, oppression, persecution, had no right to condone What was happening in South Africa? First-class citizens in South Africa were the so-called Europeans, who were white-skinned and, surprisingly, Japanese, who had been our enemies during the war. But that suited the nationalist government very well. Several members of that government had been incarcerated in jail during the war. Chinese were second-class citizens. And I quite honestly I don't know for certain whether there was another degree of citizenship before the last degree, which was the black people. But I know that Indians and also people of mixed race were sort of not considered as far down the hierarchy as black people were. Although they were the majority, they were the most put down and the most put upon people in the country. When we first arrived in South Africa, the ruling party was the United Party, led by General Smuts, and he took us into World War II on the the side of the Allies. However, previously there had been a national party, which was very fascist in outlook, There were a lot of discontented people in in South Africa who were actually on the side of Germany during the war, and some of them who had been outspoken were actually in jail throughout the war. Three years after the war ended, in 1948, we had general elections in South Africa, which resulted in a victory for the nationalists who became the government. It was the nationalist government that brought about all these restrictive laws that I've mentioned. Most people go along with the status quo, whatever the status quo is and wherever they are, it seems to me. I was fortunate in that I wasn't born in South Africa. I came from elsewhere with parents who came from elsewhere and gave me a different perspective right from the start. But if I hadn't been blessed with parents who understood this, I might have turned out differently. I don't know. I think that the majority of people just accepted the situation. They might not have been violently or vehemently racist at all, but it was very convenient. It was very convenient, and they weren't going to upset the apple cart. when I saw black people in an endless queue waiting for hours for a bus, whereas we white people had to wait a short time and had much shorter queues. And that's just one small, small example of the injustice un- injustice of the situation which made me feel very bad, very guilty. I was in a perpetual state of guilt about because there were so many examples of black people being maltreated and being treated as inferiors and it made me feel terrible. But I never actually became an activist. So it's all very well my saying it wounded me and how embarrassed and ashamed and hurt I felt. But I didn't actually join a political party. I didn't I did not become an activist. I had reservations about every political party that was opposing the nationalists. I didn't want to join the communists. It was a very complex situation, but I never did anything, but I never did any political action for a very cowardly reason. No, it's not entirely cowardly. I was passionate about my career as a violinist, that I still had ahead of me the most, most of it. And I had to practice the violin. I, I had a very late start and I had a lot of catching up to do, I felt. And I knew that if I did what I wanted to do politically, I would end up in jail. And that would be the end, as I saw it, of my career. And my violin came first. And that's very selfish, but that's how it was. Shortly after the war, no, shortly after the war in Europe was over, it was obvious that my father was quite ill. He had two or three operations, and the last time he was in hospital, I had been told that I would be able to go and visit him on my 14th birthday. I was quite worried about him and was really looking forward to visiting him on my birthday. My mother had, meanwhile, moved away from our flat and was living with my father in the hospital. So that I was on my own on the morning of my 14th birthday. And the first thing I did was to telephone my mother in the hospital, ask her how my father was and when I could come and visit. All I remember her saying was, He is still conscious. That was the first time she had spoken in such a way and it filled me with terror. I hadn't been faced personally with death before, I had absolutely no idea what to expect. But I went to school that morning very, very worried. And our first session at school on a Friday morning, I remember it was a Friday, was singing. And the moment that we started to sing, I could no longer control myself and I burst into tears. And I wept all through that session. And our singing teacher held me back and asked what was the matter. and I told her that my father was very ill in hospital, and that's all I said, and I don't remember anything more about school on that day, and in the evening I was invited, as I had been all the time while my mother was staying in the hospital, to eat with my violin teacher and his wife and little girl who lived in the flat immediately above us we had just sat down to eat when there was a knock on the door and they said that i should go to answer it so i went and found my mother standing there looking very pale and spent and she said to me, he's gone. And I said, what do you mean he's gone? What's that mean? And she said, he's dead. Your father is dead. And that was a total catastrophe for me. I. She went up to her room shortly after she came in and then went up to her... Um, to her, to our flat and into her room shortly afterwards and I sat down imagining that I was going to be eating this meal that had been put in front of me but of course I couldn't eat a thing so I followed my mother into our flat but I didn't go to her I felt sort of that she was remote that she was felt as if she was a holy being, because she'd become a widow. And I felt all I wanted was oblivion. I laid down facing the wall and wished for oblivion. And after that, I used to dream about my father every night. I used to imagine seeing him in the street seeing the back of him and, of course, but when I saw the front of this person, it was never my father. And that's how it was. I had a very close relationship with my mum. Unfortunately, because I was so devastated by this disappearance forever from my father, I refused to speak of him to everybody not just my mother but of course my mother wanted to speak about my my father and I just I was so stubborn when I think back how I was then I, I get so cross with myself because it was so bad it was so unkind towards my mother not to to absolutely refuse to speak about my father And that's how it went on for years and years until I was a student in in London and she came to London on a visit and actually told me that she thought that I had blamed her for my father's death because I had refused to speak about him. And I was so upset at myself for having put my poor mother through all this. On the other hand, inwardly, I felt very close to my mother. I had no idea that I was hurting her in this way. And I know I was quite a good support to her. She could tell me all her worries, and, and she had many more worries to contend with. In 1960, a great movement arose, whereby all black people went to their local police station and handed in their passes. They just didn't want the passes anymore. The last police station where this happened was at Sharpeville, which was in the Transvaal, not too far from Johannesburg, where the police saw a great horde of people coming towards them. They were all unarmed, but the police got scared panicked and opened fire. Whereupon these people turned around and started running away. So they had their backs to the police and were running away. And the police went on shooting and they mowed people down. As far as I remember, 63 people died and many, many more were very badly wounded. And this became known as the Sharpville Massacre and shocked the whole of the civilized world. Uh, Then some rioting broke out in, in protest against this, whereby the government simply declared a state of emergency, which meant that they could do anything without regard to the law, whatever they chose to do. The state of emergency was the final push, to decide my mother that we had to leave that country. She said, we can't live with this criminal government any longer. And it was decided that I would leave first and try and become established in my profession as a violinist, orchestral violinist, and she would follow once she had wound up her affairs. I had made friends already from my student days in London and so if we were going to leave that was where I wanted to come and this is what we did We came to London and here I am. (laughs) In September 1956 Dushan and I parted I telephoned him from Germany on my way home to South Africa And that's the last time we actually spoke to each other. That was still September 1956. And the next time we spoke to each other was in 2005. It was seven years before Dushan wrote to me, by which time I was back in England again, before he wrote to me and told me, today I am getting married. Seven years later, he was still the most important man in my life, even though I'd had affairs in between. But he still meant more to me than anybody else I'd met. And he wanted to continue writing to me. He said it made no difference to his feelings for me. But I refused. I didn't want to be in a... I didn't want to be the other woman. I'd made up my mind I wasn't going to be the other woman. So I sent him a wedding present, but... I didn't write any, I refused to answer all his questions and I didn't go on writing to him. But in 2005, when I was happily married, I met a girl who was Serbian in an orchestra. I found we were playing next to each other and she was a violinist. And the temptation was just too great. I asked her whether she knew of... A pianist called Dusan Trubojevic and she said of course I know him he's very famous throughout Serbia and I only recently went to a concert of his and I was so impressed and surprised that he could still play so well at his age he was of course a lot he was a lot older than me. he was six and a half years older than I and so I said could she find out what his telephone number was? And she said she'd ring up her father and ask him to, to get Dushan's telephone number. And I told Henry, my husband, who knew all about Dushan, because I never kept any secrets from him, and I asked him if he had any objections to my phoning Dushan. And he said no. He felt confident enough in our relationship not to worry So I phoned Dushan. His wife answered the phone, and I knew that his wife could speak English because he had written that she was an English teacher. So I asked her if she was Mrs. Treboevich, and she said yes. And I said that I was an old friend of her husband's from London and would like to speak to him. So she passed me on to him. And he was so, so surprised and so delighted to hear from me. And he asked me, oh, and he asked me so many questions about people that we knew together. And so many things that he asked me made me realize that he hadn't forgotten anything, that I, you know, that things were still as fresh in his mind as they were in mine. And at the end of the conversation he said, please phone again, it's it's like a breath of fresh air. And he also said, please send your friend Dushanka to me. Strangely, she had the female version of his name. And she was the one through whom I got his telephone number. And so I did. She came back with records of him playing... No, 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 not records. See a CD and a video of him playing on different occasions and it was just overwhelming for me uh, and then I wrote and told him how wonderful his playing was and he was so thrilled and we kept up a, a very loving com- uh, uh, correspondence until he wrote and said that his wife was getting uneasy about it and we'd, we'd have to stop for her sake though he was unhappy about saying this to me. And I wrote back and said, I completely understand because it's so important to keep that relationship intact. And I was, at that time, I was very much concerned with my husband's health and certainly didn't want anything to come between us then. So it was at the right time to stop. So that's it. He did send me some... Christmas cards after that and then I didn't hear from him anymore and I wrote to her rather wrote to the family and asked how everybody was and she wrote back and said that he had died so Dushan is no more but he was six and a half years older than me as was my husband strangely enough When I turned 70, I thought, this is, can't be me, 70, but I'm a young person, I'm not an old person. <laughs> How can I be 70 when I feel so young? But gradually, gradually, you feel yes, less young because your body is falling to, falling apart. An operation of my spine, then, an, then a hip replacement after tremendous pain in my In my hip while I was waiting for the operation and feeling life was really not worth living with this pain and then a stroke and I thought this is the last straw Um, and losing half my sight. What an indignity when I, I, I'm not an old person I'm a young person dressed up as an old person. (laughs) Well I think the only way I'm I, I, the only way I can cope with it is just to carry on. I, I have to realise I can't do as much as before. Gradually, gradually I'm realising this and acquiescing to it. I think that becoming old involves acceptance more than anything else. Accepting that one is going to die, one's been able to put that, push that to the back of one's mind until a time is drawing closer and closer. But now I have to face it. And I do it with equanimity. I'm really not frightened of dying. What I am frightened of is going through a bad time before dying, I don't want that. But then who does, nobody does. I'm quite happy to go any time now. But I hope that when I do that it will be with dignity. And peace, peacefulness and, hello? <laughs> She's, we're still doing it, yes. I'm sorry, darling. Okay, lovely, thanks. Bye. <laughs> Are you having your lunch now, she says. I said, oh, I'm still, you're still recording. Oh, I'll bring you tonight, she says. So, what were we going on about?
1: Now Then, now is then produced, is produced by, by Jesse Lawson, Lawson with
0: original illustrations. For each episode by Catherine Cormier. For more information, email nowthenstories at gmail.com.